This episode of Ragcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on! Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome, everybody. We're still at the Wyoming Outdoor Weekend. I've got Patrick Edwards here. We're hanging out, interviewing people, telling people about podcasts, showing Bow Spider off. It's been a great weekend. But we did corner, actually, you know what, a, a recurring guest that's been been <laughs> been pretty exciting to have on. So, Patrick, welcome to the show. And Dan, yeah. welcome to the show. And we've got William on the show. Hey, nice to meet you. So, William Owen. So, <laughs> we've got a special... So, William, just as kind of a backstory, his mom, Stephanie, puts on this event, really does a lot of the coordination for it, works with the Game and Fish Department, works with Lita and all mm-hmm. the different folks that are putting this on, and she was telling me how avid of a fisherman William is, and so we're having him jump on the podcast here with Dan Thompson, which is our... Recurring, I guess this is what the fourth episode, fifth, uh, fifth, fifth episode, well, and sixth if you count the one that didn't happen. Yeah, the one that didn't that's the one. Well, yeah, we'll I don't just know. Have the, the the recurring, <laughs> recurring sounds like a rash. I don't know. If that's recurring, <laughs> I like it. No, it's always good to have you on the show because you're a wealth of knowledge and just fun to talk to. And people enjoy listening to the podcast that you come on. And you share about well, good. large carnivores and everything else. So good. We thought we'd have some fun and. And talk about some common misconceptions just because i mean it, it is one of those things that we have to address when we talk about wildlife management and talk about bear sure. management land management whatever it is so what are some of the common misconceptions especially and we'll start at the top we'll start okay. with grizzly bears so what are some of the top sure. misconceptions i should have prepared better for this but <laughs> there are a lot of misconceptions and mainly just a lot of people deal in absolutes, you know, if A, then B type of scenarios, which really does not work in the world of wildlife, obviously. Um, one of one of big misconception regarding grizzly bears and the whole notion of delisting or not delisting comes up a lot in this notion. And it's promulgated by the media with headlines that say how protections will be stripped of grizzly bears if they're delisted, which is false. Uh, we still have to maintain recovery standards that are put forth in order to delist the population. And so uh, there would still be these protections in place. It would just be, now they'd be managed through state statutes and our own game and fish regulations. So there's still protections and obviously you need adequate regulatory mechanisms to delist any animal that has been listed. But the fact that there's even an opportunity to delist the bears means that the ESA is working, right? Correct. We put them on this... ESA, we say they're threatened, right? Yep. Here's a population we've identified that needs extra help, needs extra protection. And so the fact that states are even, state agencies, people, populations are even getting to a point where it's like, hey, these animals don't need this right. extra protection anymore. This should be touted as a success story, Correct. not a failure story, right? The bears yeah. are back, the bears are here, the bears are now manageable to a point where they don't need federal. I guess, implementation of stricter rules anymore. Correct, yeah, and I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think it was yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the ESA, the Native Species Act. And it does a great job at what it's supposed to do, but you have to, you have to celebrate that and move past it. And that's what's been the issue with grizzly bears is that 
they've been biologically recovered for two decades now. And the problem is, is that there's money to be made by some keeping them listed and there's controversy associated with it. But the truth of the matter is, is that biologically they have met those metrics that were agreed upon. And this is a big convoluted interweb. It's not just um, rule A affects animals in, in, you know, episode B. So it's not like, hey, we have hunting and populations are going to drop down or up. What's very interesting is Kodiak brown bear, right? Yeah. When they implemented hunting, and we'll call it um, specifically targeting big boars, yeah. the infanticide rate dropped way down and the bear population actually exploded on the island because yeah. you no longer had 1,500-pound super carnivores walking around eating the three, 400-pound cubs. Right. Right? So when you remove those ultra-big bears from the population, you actually have a healthier population of bears. Yeah, and all those things would be part of future management should it occur and uh, again we very much support that so yeah you're right uh and that's the other misconception that well i don't even know if that's a misconception but it's very interwoven and intricate all the things that you pull on one lever and a thousand things move because you've got you've got feed you've got habitat you've got weather you've got diseases you've got you know this is a very intricate biological diverse system that absolutely and realistically you you know with your ungulates and the bear in that relationship by having a protected bear we're now threatening the ungulates mm-hmm. to to a degree not i'm not yeah, saying absolute it, that they're they're endangered and they now need to go on the species list but i think bigger larger picture is is if the state can manage the ecosystem as a whole biodiverse yeah. entity and you guys can go through and look at each species individual and what's best for that species it's a lot better than handcuffing you and saying oh you can't do this with this species yeah and uh, like you said it's a holistic uh, approach to these things and we're fortunate to have the same species here now that we were here a thousand years ago in the gye mm-hmm. and that can't be said in a lot of places um and so but because of that and because of how it happened, especially with one of those apex predators being brought back by humans, human assisted with wolves, uh, <laughs> that added to a lot of controversy. And honestly, the, the prey had to figure out how to deal with wolves. And then the hunters who hunted the prey had to figure out how to hunt elk. And uh, there's behavioral and evolutionary adaptations that have occurred in the last 20 years right in front of us. And having bears expand and all these things happening at once, like you said, we see a lot of different interchanges with our ungulate populations as well. Uh, but, but yeah, it's very, it's extremely intricate. And then you add in weather and climate and things like that, and it, it makes for a tough time, which is, that's fine. We know that going into it. I think there's a, a lot of people that feel it's a lot easier than that or want to make it easier than that. And it's just, you Simpler. can't, yeah, you can't, yeah. you can't dumb down the natural world, I guess, which is cool. And I think that's, it's, I don't want to try to dumb it down, but yeah. we do try to understand it as much as possible. So because humans are part of the ecosystem, so we do try to, to understand that as much as we can because there, there are situations where we have to act as managers when there's elk causing damage we'll take- or conflict management of grizzly bears. It's yep. a reality. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing, you know, that there's a, there's a lot of people that are against grizzly bear hunting and they they don't like the notion of bears dying but bears have died this whole time as the population has also increased and so i think a lot of people forget there's a focus that's another issue there's a there's a focus on 
how many bears die without a focus on how many bears live and how many bears are born. You know, that that's always happening every year too. Again, that holistic looking at everything and the interconnectivity of everything and the, the bigger picture is very important. Well, and I think it's important to point out something that you brought up. You talked about the misconception that when they come off the ESA, it's like, oh, well, all their protections are stripped. Well, that's not how it works. We've looked at another successful year of having wolves at management levels, yeah. right? And that news just came out. I saw that in the news not too long ago. It's like yeah. everybody said the same thing about wolves. It's like, oh, my gosh, if, if, if we remove protections, you know, federal protections for them, they're just going to be gone. They're going to be gone. Well, that didn't actually happen, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> and, uh, again, none of us want to, we don't want to do anything from our management standpoint or hunting them that's going to give fuel for people that don't want them hunting. And so yeah. it's important for us to, to follow our management plans and to manage wolves in a way that provides, make sure that there's going to be wolves into the future. And some people don't like that, but too bad. That's my job is to make sure there's still wolves in the landscape, mm -hmm. but not get rid of all of them either, which is what some people want. You know, they want all, all or nothing. And it's probably most polarized with wolves, but, you know, I think that's one thing that we have the ability with how we collect data on wolves to make it fairly irrefutable that we don't want to have, quote, too many or too few wolves, but we can manage in the middle and also deal with issues related to conflict. And maybe not everybody's happy, but there's compromises and sacrifices by everybody. And at the end of the day, wolves are still doing very well where we have suitable wolf habitat. And that puts you guys in a really difficult position because to, to play a little bit of devil's advocate, you know, on, on one facet, while I want to hunt wolves, right? Mm -hmm. and yes, I want wolves to be on the landscape for my kids to see. Your guys' position is always going to be a compromise, right? Because right. the ranchers don't want a wolf on the... on the. They're, they're looking at, at calf loss and they're like, I do not want a wolf on Correct. any of the lease ground or my private ground or deeded ground. They don't want wolves. And then you've got the other side who aren't like me that won't ever hunt a wolf. They don't want to see one wolf die, period. Exactly. Yeah. And my frustration is I keep seeing the goalpost being moved from when we sit down and have an agreement amongst state agencies, you know, ranchers, farmers, anti-hunters, pro-hunters. We get in down and we sit down and everybody goes, okay, here's the agreement. Here's here are kind of the, the minimum that we're going to operate to. And then all of a sudden, i.e., when they were first introduced, population X was going to be considered recovered. And now all of a sudden we move the goalpost and go, oh, wait, no, and they're not recovered. We need to put them back on the list. It's like, wait a second. There's a carrying capacity. Yep. And these are part of a very diverse, complex ecosystem. And we can't just keep moving the goalpost. And it's it's a little frustrating. Oh, yeah. You know? Sure is. And, I, and it puts you in a tough place, right? Because you got the rancher screaming at you, kill more of them. you got the anti-hunter screaming at you, don't kill any of them. And then you got somebody like me in the middle who is, I am going to trap a wolf this year. That is my goal. I'm going to go harvest a wolf. Yeah. I would love to do it with a bow or a rifle, but... You know, let's be honest. Those wolves are—they're—they're they're pretty good do. at yeah. at, at uh, <laughs> mitigating predation from humans. They mm -hmm. just are, and so I'm going to put some steel in the ground, and that's that's legal. And in the predator zone. Oh yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. I've got some places. And no, no, no. I'm just. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And but I think one thing that that we've tried to facilitate as an agency is being very transparent and consistent with how we deal with the people on all sides and, and getting you're our, never going to make yeah, everybody I almost happy. Swore there, getting our butts kicked. <laughs> um, but sitting there and taking it from people, a lot of people want their opinions heard and that's fine. And I'm an opinionated person too. I just don't 
use it in my job. <laughs> so uh, there's a that, that's another. We hear this from people. You didn't listen to me. We listen, but we can't implement what every single person wants to do because there's there's diametrically opposing viewpoints in some of these scenarios. So which we ultimately have to make that is benefit great because the compromise is it's the best for it's the best solution for yeah, everybody. Correct. We can't remove all the wolves. I don't want to. I'm and you know if, I, if people want to hate me for saying this, great. The ranchers are screaming. I don't want to remove every wolf from the population. Yeah. When when you're up in the woods and you hear a wolf howl, there is something distinctly different than a coyote howl. I mean, the, the hair on your arms and neck will stand up, and you you realize that there's a large carnivore on the landscape, and you don't quite feel as um, top of the food chain anymore. Well, and you're absolutely there's a visceral feeling when you're walking around and you step over a grizzly bear track, or you hear that sound of a wolf, and that's you can't replicate that in a zoo or anything like that or in a movie and, and, and when you're in that landscape it's real and so we do have to take into account all those different viewpoints as far as those compromises that we're doing and honestly a lot of the people that complain or I shouldn't say complain but people that are, are dealing with grizzly bears and wolves especially they might say things but they're also proud to be part of that system that recovered wolves that allows us to manage them now and allows them to take care of conflict situations with wolves mm-hmm. now where they couldn't in the past we should because be they know high-fiving. they can call us too yeah I we agree. should be everybody should be going high, high five ten. we did it high <laughs> yeah. ten wolves are back and they're managed and we can hunt them and it's it's a good compromise so yeah and i i wouldn't say normalize but we've desensationalized wolf management quite honestly based on the information that we have we've reduced conflicts with livestock depredation we have a a science-based compensation program for livestock depredation. All these things factor into... So one misconception that I've heard of a couple times that I've really... I, I, I've heard it a hundred times is the wolves we reintroduced are the apex Canadian wolf that was bred to kill moose and bison, and they're not our plains wolf. Is there really a genetic difference from the wolves we extirpated locally here from GYE to the wolves we reintroduced? So the, the subspecies most people are, are referring to, the Eremotus, is different than the ones that were brought in, but they were brought in specifically because they were primarily elk predators. And that's why they were brought into those two areas and reintroduced because of, of being known to be elk, primarily feeding on elk. And so uh, there's a, I can't get into the full specifics, but the, uh, the, this notion of these giant, super huge wolves from the north brought in is not really the case. I mean, there's a, there's a scientific, basically, guideline that as you, as you move further north, the, the species are larger. Yes, it's Bergman's rule, and uh, so yes, as you go further north, you're going to see some bigger wolves. But also, if a, if you have wolf packs primarily feeding on bison through time and evolution, they get bigger. So at the end of the day, the, the size of the wolves that were brought in uh, overlapped with the same size of the wolves that were here previously, and they were brought in primarily because of the to to deal with elk in Yellowstone and other areas where elk populations were overpopulated. But they're not these. I was don't forget talk. to Sorry. So, basically, they were brought in for that reason, but they're they're not these super giant Canadian super wolves that a lot of people talk about. Does that help? I mean, it's it's that kind helps, of confusing, yeah. uh, but they were on their way down here anyway, too. So I think the the biggest issue with that is that grizzly bears were always here, mountain lions were always here, black bears were always here, and quite honestly. 
those species have all expanded their range and distribution mm-hmm. with management, with hunting. Uh, wolves are brought back, and that's a whole different concept when, and especially the government, quote, the government brought them back. Grizzly bears have been brought back, right? No, grizzly I mean, bears were always They in were always GYE. here, but, but their population was... They were down. ...was limited compared oh, to what yeah, it is today. Oh, yeah, I mean, less than 150 at one point. In and what is, what is the current estimation? Right around 1,000. In the area we count. So there's bears that, are, that we don't count in areas beyond the, the area that's suitable. Mm-hmm. And that's just to maintain a consistent area. Of and what is your estimation factor on that? As far as that thousand bears, are you a couple percent low, a couple percent high? Uh, it's still conservative. Conservative, yeah, but it's it's a lot more accurate than it was with four the DNA or five years ago. Air samples. No, it, it's a uh, it's basically um, we use the data that we've collected for decades to refine the estimator and make it more accurate. The way it was set up years ago, there was nothing wrong with it but when it was set up. It was the same method we were using with a very low density bear population. Because of the way it was set up, we knew through time as the bear density increased that we wouldn't be able to track it as well. But because we've been monitoring the population, we could use our own data, that's how science works, <laughs> to, to update it and to be adaptable and to yep. come up with a more reflective estimate of the population. Well, and to that point, like factors have changed over the last few decades, right? Like sure. the environment's changed. People yeah. have moved into new areas. Like things have, things keep moving and changing. So you always have to move your model and change to adapt to what's going on. Yeah, nobody's, uh, there's this notion that we're trying to pull the wool over some people's eyes. And it's really not. It's, we're trying to have data based on science and numbers based on that, that, uh, again, that, that are not to prove that there's too many or too few, is to show this is how many we can demonstrate there are. And to make sure that that's, that number is defendable. And for grizzly bears, it has to be biologically and litigation, or biologically defendable, and then also the notion of to delist them, it has to pass the federal system and the court system. And that's where it gets really tricky. So what about mountain lions? What's one of the big misconceptions with mountain lions? Because you and I both are big mountain lion fans. So, you know, what are some things that the public has misconceptions on mountain lions for? Because, I mean, they've been in the news a ton lately, like Colorado, Wyoming, lots of different places. You know, what are some common myths, myths, misconceptions that folks have? I should have prepared again a little better (laughs) for that. Um, You know, it's interesting. Before I came here, I worked uh, in the Black Hills of South Dakota and Wyoming on mountain lions. And it's very interesting. Whatever is the the biggest predator on the landscape is the the animal that people focus on the most, which I understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a lot of these areas where we have grizzly bears and wolves, there's a lot less. People don't worry as much about mountain lions anyway, I guess. Put it that way. Uh, But there's some of these areas of expansion, I think there's a, I've heard that, the same thing, especially in the Midwest, that that whomever, game agencies or whatever, brought back mountain lions, introduced them, black helicopters, feed trucks, I've heard it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not something we hear. So you guys aren't much. going out and darting and uh, trapping these lions and At dropping night, them off no. in new places? No, no, <laughs> we're not. I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it's misconceptions, but um, there's a lot of there's a lot of interest and scrutiny on mountain lions now because our mule deer populations are, are low across the West. Right. And, um, and that's something that bothers me just as, I guess, an ecologist who cares about all wildlife and we hate to see mule deer go down. And I think most all of us can agree that it's 
driven by habitat and larger factors. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's easy to, especially with mountain lions, to have them as a scapegoat when it comes to mule deer management, which is not really fair. And I think we, we do we do incorporate those notions of maintaining stability or reducing mountain lion populations in areas where we feel it would promote uh, any rebound of, of mule deer. But again, back to what we were talking about before, it's not as easy as that. One thing that we've found with the research that, that's been done here in Wyoming, uh, Justin Clapp, who's working on his PhD right now, looking at mountain lions, he's worked in a couple areas now, and uh, the diversity of diet in mountain lions is pretty fascinating. Uh, we had a we had a tom who got to be a really big male that was practically subsisting on all medium-sized mammals, eating raccoons and Canada geese and porcupines and things like that. Beavers. So, beavers, yep, a lot of beaver. And so, uh, I think it's, it's, it's easy to, you know, just equate mountain lions kill mule deer, which they do, and we mm-hmm. know that. Oh, yeah. But they, there's a lot of other things going on. And then we also have, you know, we have expanding elk populations and competition um, scenarios with mule deer. Large male mountain lions take a higher proportion of elk. So, again, it's very intricately woven into that. That's not really a misconception. And it's individual versus individual. It's not just this is a mountain lion's diet, right? Exactly. This is not a it's, zoo. It's extremely individualized yeah. when it comes to their diets, but I think it's it's a lot more diverse than, than we gave them credit for in the past. And we see more scavenging now than was, we thought. In the I'm going to tell you something kind of cool that I just thought of. I don't know I hadn't mentioned it before, but when I was in my teenage years, I used to go hike on that creek by my house mm-hmm. where we know we have mountain lions and whatnot. And there was this one area where, you know, there were some carcasses that had been, you know, drug over there yeah. like mule deer. But in inside the bones of that and all those things, there were carp bones because that creek has a lot of large size common carp. Yeah. And I think the mountain lions were catching those. Really? Yeah. And which, there's been videos of lions which fishing. It doesn't surprise me, right? Yeah. Like yeah. The, because they are incredibly adaptable, just like the black bears yep. are, right? They they find the food that's available and they go and they, they eat it. Yeah. And that, for when I started in the mountain lion world, which was a while ago, I don't need to say how long ago, but uh, <laughs> the prevailing notion was that they didn't scavenge and they only killed their prey. And we've really found that there's there can be fairly high scavenging rates from mountain lions. And in a winter like this, where we had a lot of unfortunate death of ungulates, uh, we had we had collared mountain lions that we saw were going from from carcass to carcass. So again, that's just another another chapter in the overall knowledge of these animals mm-hmm. that, that we do try to implement in our management and conservation of those species and, and also in the larger picture of, of ungulates as well. I think it's interesting when you look at all these animals. I mean, people don't give them enough credit. They're going to survive right. and they're going to do what they have to do. You know, there was that mountain lion that was in the news because it was eating people's dogs. It's like, well, he was an opportunistic right. predator. He had to have food, and that's what he did. I mean, the, the animals are going to do what they have to do. Yeah, and I, that's, and you alluded to a, a fundamental problem we have as humans, I think, is not underestimating the potential of all wildlife. Now, we do, we definitely do see some issues with species that are more more specific than generalists, and that's, you know, mule deer don't have the ability to adapt to scenarios as well as even like pronghorn will move more. Mule deer kind of mm-hmm. stick to their area, and unfortunately that doesn't help in the long run. But at the end of the day, still, there's, there's evolutionary changes. We see that the people that are doing the research on migration, and it would make sense they're seeing, they're seeing animals that don't follow the main path. Because if they all follow the main path, all it takes is one bad event and they all die, right? So th- that is happening there. I just I think there's a, a, lot of, a lot of times we underestimate the overall ability of, of wildlife. And 
all wild species to adapt and evolve through time. Yeah. And black bears have expanded mm -hmm. quite a bit. So black bears, mountain lions are expanding. You know, it, I think the one of the misconceptions I see is people don't think that that would happen because there are more people on the landscape, but yet they're still expanding. Yeah, and uh, and to the point, I think that's that's part. So I think I mentioned that earlier, but a lot the notion of the fact that hunting is had been a component of that as well, mm -hmm. and so you can still have hunting as a component of conservation and management and still see population rebounds but we can also use hunting and, and also agency management to not promote those species everywhere and some people don't like when I say that but that's the reality of it humans are part of the landscape as well for the long term viability of especially an apex carnivore we shouldn't promote them everywhere because if bad things happen between them and humans that that decreases the tolerance for those animals. And we're seeing it right now with grizzly bears. The longer that grizzly bears remain protected, or not protected, I shouldn't even say that term, right? <laughs> but uh, but the, as long as they, they remain under this federal nexus, and the fact that we can't move past that, and as bears expand into areas that even the service has said is unsuitable, we see that tolerance wane. And, and that's, that's what I don't wanna see. I mean, it's always gonna be part of management Again, that, that's why I think it's important that we hear that, you know, we, you're going to say something, David, about the humans and being part of the ecosystem, and it's true. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to say is, you know, consumptive hunters are looked at as being, you know, the, the bad guy in this situation, right? But the people that are building summer homes or winter homes, ski resort homes, wherever they are, their second home, you know, let's look at Front Range in Salt Lake or, you know, Colorado. Humans are moving into traditional winter habitat, right? Correct. Yeah. And that, quote unquote, non-consumptive, well, I buy a ski house and I drive a Tesla and I, I recycle. You are having an impact on deer and elk and antelope and mule deer. And it is a negative impact, especially when you pave a road up a ridge that never had human presence right. before, yeah, right? Absolutely. And so to sit here and thumb your nose at the wildlife hunter that's actively engaging in this ecosystem management and say, well, I don't hunt, so therefore I'm not harming wildlife, baloney. Well, you have an impact, um, right? Yeah. Shed hunting has an impact. Hiking and photographing into wild spaces and nature has some impact on wildlife. Absolutely. And, and so, I, don't, I don't use the term consumptive, non-consumptive because... We're all consumptive. If, if you breathe, you're consumed. If you breathe air, you're consumptive. You. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd rather, I would rather there could be an understanding of the different compromises that all people are having place. And mm -hmm. that, and I'd I mean, rather be part of the solution than part of the problem. Correct. Right? It's easy to cast stones and throw things from you know apartment building on the seventh floor or something. <laughs> I've but heard the joke that, that you sounds know, like social media. Right. <laughs> Central well, Park needs a couple wolves. Well, and but if I we mean, can't the harvest social them. media thing has changed the entire world of wildlife <laughs> management exponentially. For sure. So. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe that's that's one of the negative things, right, about social media is that it really has impacted wildlife, I think, in a negative way. And some of these things that are done and said on social media really impact these wildlife agencies and the people sure. that work for them. I, I see comments all the time, like we had recently with a grizzly bear that was killed, you know, near a road that somebody thought was a black bear. 
like the comment string, I'm like, come on, folks, you, you got to stop. But I mean, this stuff has impacts. It doesn't matter whether you're living in New York City and making comments about it or, or wherever. It's, it's having an effect. What I appreciate about you, Dan, is that you guys are out there and you're actively working with these animals to try to preserve them for us and for our kids and to have them on the landscape so that no matter whether it's a photographer, videographer, a mm. hunter, that we can enjoy that wonderful resource that is those wildlife. Yeah, and well, thank you. We appreciate that. Um, you know, I've said this many times to our commission and to the public that we'd rather have the the interest in apathy. We don't have any mm-hmm. apathy when it comes to these animals, <laughs> and that's a good thing. And uh, but I can't sit and talk to to everybody. But the human face to face discussions you have with people, at least more than ninety percent of the time end up in a really good dis, you know, discussion. And uh, people that come in really hot on one side of the issue or the other or in between, talking to them and listening to them, active communication is is how we move forward with all wildlife conservation and management. It's just... I think it's how we move forward as a society is yes. what, what is the solution to bad speech? And there's no such thing as bad speech, but what is the solution <laughs> maybe. to maybe misinformation yeah. or disinformation? It's more good information. Exactly. And your job is going out and collecting yeah. information and, you know, at least getting a trend line and saying the information points to this as a possible solution problem or at least the information the data collected states that we have this on the landscape and if we do this the potential outcome could be this and after year after year after year of you going out collecting the data implementing some sort of strategy mm-hmm. you can then see a trend line of hey we've had this problem in the past i.e a hard winter we reduce tags all of a sudden oh we don't harvest as many young we have right. a good spring boom it levels itself out and that's if people would understand what carrying capacity is Right, we're gonna have death. We need to have replacement, renewal. Right? Yeah. De- yeah. Death is a natural part of this ecosystem. And I, you alluded to it too, the, the fact that I think we don't talk in absolutes as scientists or managers because we don't we don't want to say things wrong. And I, I, the public doesn't like that. And I get that the, the the notion of science speak. I mean, I always joke that if I was a weatherman, I could just say fifty percent chance every day. Fifty percent chance this and will be successful we can't with do the grizzlies. Uh, but you are right. I mean, I, what where we get hurt is that I guess we we play by the rules when we when we provide our information, and other people don't have to in the world of social media or lobbing grenades from from wherever because there's no accountability, and we have all accountability, and that's good, and that's the path is chosen. The, the people, those of us that choose the path that we have, realize we're going to get beat up. But because you're on the ground and you're on the, you know, you're in the trenches, it does feel like you're doing the right thing. But you know that coming into it, that that there's going to be people lobbing those things. I'm rambling on now. I realize. No, but. no, no. And it's it's good that you have to defend your work, right? Yes. It's Absolutely. great that you Remember have to defend it because whether make sure you are registered and go watch the bag slide. On the south side of the building starting at 3 p.m. Again, make sure you shop local raffle, bring your receipts for merchandise bought in Fremont County between May 14th and 20th and receive one raffle ticket for every 10 spent. Raffle tickets are also available to purchase. So on any of these issues, whether you're pro or con, right, whether I'm for what you're doing or against what you're doing, you need to be able to defend what you're exactly. doing. And, and mm-hmm. I agree with that. I right? do. 
And that way we get to the best compromise that is going to please. We won't use the consumptive, non-consumptive. We'll use the pro and, and, yeah. and you know, the cons and pros. People that are for, people are against. You've got to be able to stay up, stand up there in public and say, you know what, we're going to do it this way because this is it's kind of a socialistic mentality. This is the, the best for all, but it's not the best for all humans. This is the best for the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And yeah. you get to stand up there and I get it. You got the, the rancher on one side screaming you're you're no good and you're you're taking his livelihood and you got the anti on the other side saying you're no good and you're you're removing bears from the population and they I've heard them say this and this is wrong. They've said to me more multiple times that they'd rather you know, a ninety nine animals get removed by an agency. Yeah. Than one animal get removed by a hunter. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. That, but that yeah. they're okay if a federal agency comes in and says, "Hey, we need to remove all the mountain goats in Teton because they're threatening the sheep. We're right. gonna, we're going to gun them from a helicopter and take them out." And that was controversial. And I I disagreed with it as a hunter because I've been putting in for those tags to to be able for an opportunity to go after those goats and to say, "Hey, well, there's a." We, we have a change on the landscape. We need to do a, a different management objective. And the, the anti-hunters are like, oh, well, the government says we need to come in a helicopter and just waste these. Like, as the hunting community, there was a big pushback on that yeah. mountain goat thing. And there should have been. And there should be on the other side when, you know, if it was, hey, we're going we're gonna to take species X and we're going to wipe it out, the anti should be pushing back and the pro hunters should be pushing back and pushing game and fish to kind of that median mode, middle ground. Yeah. And hopefully everybody involved can start looking at it and going, well, this is the best for this wildlife and it's, you know... Well, it's ecology. Well, and What's I think best for the ecosystem, get, right, Dan? The point you're getting at is, I think, too, is that this... I hear it a lot. This notion that people creating mutually exclusive items that aren't if we hunt bears i can't take pictures of them anymore and that's not true if i take pictures of bears right and if i take pictures i mean the fact that we have a harvestable segment of any population means that they are there on the landscape to be we're beaten. doing our job correctly yeah and i mean the fact that there's a huge ecotourism industry in teton county that wasn't there a decade ago yep and but all those ecotourism people go buy a hamburger at Wendy's, McDonald's, or the steakhouse in Jackson. Right. And those hamburgers need protected from the grizzly bears, right? <laughs> well, I'm just saying, it's these things, the fact that, yeah, people create things that are, or try to make things mutually exclusive that are not. This rule of absolutes, and your job yeah. is not absolutes. Your no, job is, no. is far from that. Very much so. And as my phone's ringing about yeah. things, I probably need to go. <laughs> no, I totally understand. So, Dan, thank you for coming on and talking about some of the common misconceptions with, the, you know, these large carnivores. And I just want to reiterate this one more time. But thank you so much for all that you do and your agency, your team. You guys put in a lot of hours. You get called out at crazy times and, and do a lot of work so that we have these magnificent animals on our landscape. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I'm very blessed to have an amazing group of men and women in our large carnivore section that basically sacrifice everything for the for the wildlife that they deal with, and that makes my job pretty easy. Yeah, and we sure enjoy having you on the podcast. So thanks Always again for fun. taking the time, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Radcast Outdoors podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed the show. If so, please go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you're listening to this podcast and subscribe, share, and give us a five-star rating, which really helps other people find the show. You can find all of our shows, recipes, giveaways, videos, and much more at radcastoutdoors.com. While you're there, please help support the show by purchasing a Radcast Outdoors shirt or hat. Please don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We also have a Radcast community on Facebook called Radcast Nation, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation there. And of course, please help support our sponsors who make this show possible. Thank you again to PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Until next time, get out there and enjoy the outdoors.